I am Emily Lyons. In 2009, without a high school degree and no money to my name, I decided to start my own business. But since then, I've built several multi-million dollar companies and I don't plan on stopping. Being a businesswoman, CEO, serial entrepreneur, survivor, and general life enthusiast, I'm endlessly jazzed by the business of life, especially the stories of extraordinary people I've had the privilege to meet along my own improbable journey to success. I don't think it's fair to keep that privilege to myself, and I think you deserve to be lifted and shifted by these people too. After all, all inspiring people are inspired people. So get ready to be inspired. This is Mind Your Business. Dave, welcome. Thank you. Great to have you here. It's great to be here. The Monday when we're recording this, yeah, that's a great way to start the week. You have got a big background. You've done a lot of things. I'm old. That's right. I think <laughs> <to say> <laughs> No, tell everybody, who are you? What do you do? What's your story? Well, I try really hard to think about big picture. So I'm a husband and I'm a dad. I have a 10-year-old and an almost eight-year-old and they keep me busy. And I think I'm maybe more present to start there. I'm in a post-COVID world where I spend so much time working from home and actually getting little you know, moments of a family joy. Whereas when I was going to the office from eight until seven every day, it was a very different life. And someone who grew up in Chicago, I spent about 20 years in California and currently experiencing Austin, Texas. The last two years with my family were outdoorsy and we spent a lot of time on the lake and mountain biking and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And the reality is I, I love building consumer internet companies and kind of got bit by that bug in 1999 or so and have had the fortune and stress and anxiety of a career working with entrepreneurs and being an entrepreneur and growing up in a world of change in a way you can leverage technology to solve problems and build companies and engage with consumers. And I've done that on the brand side, launching brands ranging from skincare and beauty to shoes to clothing and apparel to software. And I've done it on the marketing tech side you know, building software to take advantage of data and efficiency and measurement and things that kind of the, the internet era has brought to allow us as marketers to move quickly and do things that at a speed that was never possible before with a certain level of accuracy and efficiency that was never possible before. That's kind of super high level. And we can certainly dive into any number of you know phases that I've gone through or companies that I've been involved with. Mm-hmm. So prior to your current company, which is Posty. When did you found Posty? Really January 1st of 2017. So about five and a half years ago. Okay. And what does it do exactly? So Posty is a marketing technology platform that has brought all the tools that we've known to enjoy and embrace and rely on to execute and optimize and scale our digital media channels like programmatic or search or social, but to make those capabilities and technologies apply to offline media starting with direct mail. So we're kind of in this world where those of us who have been around for 10, 15 years in the direct-to-consumer marketing world had a lot of benefit and excitement piggybacking on the scale and trajectory and capability that Facebook put in our hands and kind of learned the power of social and leveraging big data and measurement. And then you know, about the time that we launched Posty, we were just feeling the pain, right? It's a double-edged sword. If there's you know an emerging channel and everyone flocks to it because it offers a lot of great things then the nature of marketplace dynamics means those channels become powerful and they become expensive and they become very competitive. And so 
the game for us was, okay, well, you can't just build a business on Facebook. You have to think about ways that you can engage prospect customers and your existing customers with the same level of fidelity and accuracy and efficiency. And you need to find other ways to engage them. Mm. And in digital, at the time that we launched Posty, there really wasn't any emerging channel. Now there's some hope in TikTok and you know, there was hope in Snap for a while. And I think it's proven its limitations in scale. But you know, there are offline channels that are amazing. And one that we really got excited about was direct mail. It's an addressable channel. You can talk directly to individuals at specific you know, households or businesses. And there's all sorts of interesting ways to leverage first-party data and third-party data the same way that you do on programmatic or, or Facebook to target and to learn and predict who's likely to engage with your brand. And there's direct measurement. You can understand exactly you know, what happens when you put a dollar into the channel or $10 into the channel or a million dollars into the channel and what you receive in value. And that helps you make better decisions moving forward. There just was never any software to make the channel dynamic and fast and automated. And so that's what Posty does. We really just try and you know, bring all the amazing digital consumer marketing tools to the direct mail channel. And do you service worldwide? U.S. only. There are both kind of specific capabilities that the U.S. Postal Service and U.S.-based data providers give us that allow the channel to behave really well and to drive tremendous performance that some of the other countries don't have. And so we certainly always pay attention to what's going on in Europe and Asia and even Canada and in Mexico, Central and South America. Right now, there's more limited delivery services as well as higher costs of delivering and producing ads in the channel and limited data. So not as, as much fidelity in the targeting. And so U.S. is is where we focus. It's a $50 billion space annually, just wow. in the U.S. alone. It is a really big channel. You need to come to Canada. No shortage of clients who ask. We do service some campaign types in Canada. It's early, early, but we have a number of clients that are leaning in with us from a CRM perspective. So because they already have the first-party data, and the address level data that the Canadian Postal Service is actually quite great at delivering. And so we do service those campaigns. Canada has certain limitations on individual level targeting and data. Mm-hmm. And so the ability to run prospecting as an addressable channel in Canada is a bit limited right now. But that doesn't mean that we're not trying to get creative. We just want to make sure that anything that we bring to market is highly effective for potential prospect customers. And how does a direct mail, how does it compare now with email marketing and online ads? What's the ROI on each of them? Are they better now or... That's a great question. So our you know, kind of consistent analysis and we measure every campaign. So we see exactly what creative, what ads, what audiences, what tactics and strategies, you know, return across hundreds of different verticals and micro verticals. And I can definitively say that we have proven over and over again over these past five and a half years that direct mail from an ROI perspective goes head to head with the best performing digital channels. So, you know, programmatic, non-branded search, branded search is its own, you know, beast, but very limited in scale. And then social, of course. So from a CPA perspective, from a return and ad spend perspective, most advertisers see comparable performance. Interestingly, because direct mail is a channel that gets more cost efficient with scale, whereas some of the programmatic marketplace channels like social get more expensive with scale, the more you spend in the channel oftentimes will result in better and better performance. So not only out of the gate can it perform toe-to-toe with the channels that we've all come to rely on from a performance perspective, but it gets better with time and scale and investment as well. 
you know, with regards to email, look, email is practically free, right? That's why it's such an interesting channel. You pay for your ad server. There's no cost of really sending an email or very incremental at best. The challenge with email, yeah, every brand should be doing it for sure. And that should be a big investment because the cost base is so low. But again, we're all in business to grow businesses, not just to drive efficiency. So you always need to be looking at an omni-channel approach. The challenge with email is that year over year, the open rates and the response rates continue to drop as more and more advertisers have been clued into the value there. And so you have to use email. Like I don't think that's ever going away. But if all you're doing is email from a CRM perspective, you're probably stunting the growth of your business. Well, I find that it's really oversaturated. Everybody's on email and I don't know about you, but I rarely click open now. I'm just constantly clicking on subscribe, even from companies I buy from just because it's so annoying. It's so in your face every single day. I'm with you for a couple of reasons. One, just the sheer volume of my work inbox is tremendous. And I have this like deep-seated anxiety of not keeping a clean inbox. So when there's a work email, I think about that as a to-do. It needs to be responded to. It needs to be archived and moved on from. And so when you start also carrying this big personal email inbox, there's just not time to get through it. So I try and keep mine very clean. The other piece is, look, I'm a consumer and I'm as susceptible to advertising as anyone else. And I try and keep my own personal spending in check and it can spin out of control really fast, especially with this thing called Amazon, where it seems like before I even know that I want something, it's already been delivered to my house and putting my credit card statement. I mean, it's remarkable. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, they're brands that I love and I want to continue shopping for them. But I also recognize that dopamine fires in my brain just like it does in everybody else's brain. And so I'm careful about how I interact with ads because I know the effect that they have on me and others. Now, before you started Posty, you were primarily an investor? Because I know you were involved with some pretty incredible brands. and For sure. That was the stint before Posty. I spent six or seven years as one of the original partners at a tech studio and incubator in Santa Monica, California called Science. And we were investors. We provided seed capital to very, very early stage entrepreneurs and businesses, oftentimes just a PowerPoint presentation, other times some rough sketch of a a prototype. And we also got involved at a more operational level. We weren't running the businesses for the entrepreneurs, but we were providing everything from technology and marketing service layers to help both educate, train, hire teams in conjunction with these startups, and then oftentimes providing services, whether it was media buying or funnel optimization or prototyping product, in some cases, been helping them build. I think we touched something like 75 startups. They, they didn't all make it out of the gate, but some of them ended up becoming big, several hundred million dollar a year revenue businesses, and some had billion dollar exits. And it was just a really fun, dynamic place to be. Whereas, you know, most of us in Posties no different. I get up every day and I'm singularly focused on the problem that we're trying to tackle and provide a solution for. And it's business building. And we do it fast, but it's still, you know, it's a very focused way to spend your time. At Posty, it seemed like every few days there was another shiny object. There was another interesting business concept or thesis that we were interested in. And we were going searching for entrepreneurs that wanted to build those companies, or we were taking pitches, or we were, you know, knee deep, you know, sometimes neck and, and eyeball deep in helping these businesses get to market fast, raise additional capital, build their teams, prove product market fit, and then scale. It was awesome. A re- really fun way to spend some time. It sounds fun. One of the companies was Dollar Shave Club, I read. It was. It was. That was certainly a wild ride. And that was a front row seat to the fantasy that I think 
we all have as entrepreneurs of what it's like to build a business. You come up with an idea, a few months later, you launch, you have some marketing and storytelling lined up and the world falls in love with it and your website gets shut down because there's so much traffic and you can't even fulfill all the orders that people are trying to place. And four years later, one of the biggest conglomerates in the world buys your company for over a billion dollars. Like That was the Dog Shave Club story. It wasn't all easy. It was a whirlwind, but... That was roughly four years from start to exit. And it was the Hollywood movie. I mean, it really was. Why do you think they were so successful? A few reasons. You can't discount time and space, the stars and moons lining up. I don't mean for that to take away any of the hard work and executional expertise. Like there were no shortage of companies that DTC brands were launching in that same time. But if you think about the time that Dollar Shave, the world moved so fast, right? So to take a walk down, it was just building their ads platform. It was before the day of, oh, we'll figure out how to license some product or manufacture some product, create a well-done website, something simple like Shopify, and then go buy Facebook ads in a very targeted, scalable way. And next thing we know, we're doing $100 million of revenue. Like that just wasn't something you could do at that time. Similarly, YouTube was just becoming a place where the power of virality was coming alive, right? Yeah, being way up there organic listings because you know Google was figuring out kind of the way to make video distribution, you know, search indexable the way that they do text-based ads. And Dollar Shave Club was really the first brand to create a true viral sensation marketing video that got the benefit of this kind of nascent but incredibly you know, powerful and scalable distribution channels. So Mike Dubin, the founder of Dollar Shave Club, truly is that the actor that was in that funny viral video. And they just did a great job telling their story in a really irreverent and unique tone. And they came around at the, at the right time. And so even that same video today, 10 years later, I think would have had very different results. That The trajectory would have been potentially stunted because... Everybody is trying to figure out how to make their videos pop on on YouTube. And and that really was their launch moment. They rolled out their brand. They announced that they exist through that remarkable video that was introduced on YouTube. The viral mania behind that video hit. And within 24 hours, the website was shut down because no one expected the type of volume and interest to be there. It was crazy. We were working around the clock, pulling in any engineer we could grab our hands on just to make sure that we were back up and running and and that Mike and his team could fulfill orders. (laughs) That's wild. It is what, you know, it seemed remarkable. That's wild. What was it like for you? Did you learn anything crazy from that journey? I've spoke a bunch about that being a fairly transformative period in my mind as a marketer. Mm-hmm. For many years, I was very focused on behavioral economics and social psychology and how the brain reacts to certain stimuli. And the stories that I used to talk about in the research I used to do is thinking about like the casinos, right? You walk into a casino and it's a certain temperature. And they're pretty much all that temperature. I don't know exactly what it is anymore. It's been years. Yep. And they all smell very similarly. And they all have slot machines that hit the same frequency and the same cadence of ding, 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 ding. And the felt is the same color green. And most of the carpeting is the same color. Mm-hmm. And they're designed so that you have to walk through and hit different stimuli to make your way to the cage to get chips to then go sit down at the tables. All those things are well-researched and designed to get dopamine firing your brain so that you're less thinking about the money that you're potentially putting at risk and you're just getting caught up in that like frenetic, oh my God, this is so fun, I'm going a mile a minute. Certainly they serve drinks and that helps. 
But marketers, well before the internet, but certainly in the early days of the internet, spent a lot of time focusing on copy, the color of a CTA or button on your website, buy now button, and whether blonde hair models or brunette models, you know, move more product or what the color eyes of the model were, what direction the face of the model was looking at, when to use product and when to use lifestyle imagery, like whether a page should scroll or be clickable, how you should name fields in a cart and checkout flow. All those things were, you know, I was so fixated on could I get an increased percentage point in conversion by that experiment. And all that that, that stuff does still matter. But what Dollar Shave Club taught me was that building an authentic brand, having a mission on kind of what your product or service, you know, stood for, telling that story in an entertaining way that really resonates with your various addressable markets the exponential gains that you can get in trajectory and efficiency and scale are pale in comparison to getting the button color right or mm-hmm. whether to use all capitals in your headline or not. You put those two things together and that's how you can start you know, really driving efficiency with your business. But for me, that was this kind of awakening of storytelling, authenticity, brand development, And it just changed the way that I think about where to make investment at different times in a business's trajectory and the difference between the tactical and the authentic, big picture, mission-driven marketing and storytelling. Hmm. I love that. That's incredible. What a great story. I hope to make a movie about them. It really would. It would be a great movie. And and Mike Dubin should star it as himself. (laughs) (laughs) Is he still involved? He's retired now. He is retired as of a... Well, I don't know if you'd say retired. It's been a while since I caught up with him to know exactly what he's doing. But I know that he was very involved and passionate about seeing things through. And so unlike many investors, or sorry, founders who, yeah, they sell their company, make a bunch of money and can't wait till like the day that their contract or earnout is up and leave. Mike stayed five or six years, really wanted to make a smooth transition and wanted to make sure he was setting up the brand for long-term success. So while I think from start to exit, it was somewhere between four and five years. I know he stayed on more than a decade. Now, I don't know if it's true or not. I heard he was taking some time off and maybe not living in the woods, but living in a more rural environment and trying to enjoy some of the relaxation after his success, but not 100% sure. Wow. hope so. He deserves it. (laughs) Yes, he works his butt off. Yeah. And so then you had this incredible career, it sounds like, not just with Dollar Shave Club, but it sounds like you worked with, you know, Jessica Simpson, the Olsons, Keith Bosworth. Why go and start your own thing? Well, that was always planned from very, very early on. I started out at a tech company that was a marketing technology company uh, Mm -hmm. based in Chicago, fresh out of college. And early in my tenure there, moved into a media sales role and had the opportunity to engage with hundreds of brands over a number of years. And I spent a lot of time engaging with enterprise brands, Fortune 500, Fortune 100 brands. And I enjoyed those sales cycles, lots of decision makers, long sales cycles, very thoughtful evaluation cycles. That certainly taught me how to think and present in complex organizations. But like my interior kind of spirit caught, you know, kind of bitten by that startup bug because a lot of my sales cycles were selling into startups as well. And I remember selling into companies where it was maybe 25 people. There were a few founders and they were working in some crummy office space on card tables. And yeah, you know, I'd show up and do a meeting and learn about the business and tell them a little bit about you know, why I thought maybe we had a, a product to help them launch or scale. 
Mm-hmm. And we'd engage and then I'd come back six months later and they'd be in a bigger office and a little bit nicer and they'd have four times as many people. And I'd come back a year later and there'd be a bunch of Porsches and Ferraris in the you know, parking lot <laughs> and there'd be 250 people in a really fancy office with their sign on top of the building. It just didn't take a whole lot to be like, huh, like that's interesting. I go and sell into the CPG brand and every six months, it's like a different person in the same office and nothing ever changes. And then I go down the street to the startup and they're moving a mile a minute and creating things out of thin air. And I was just in awe. And so I was not one of these people who at 22 years old was ready to start his or her company. And I needed to learn. I needed to go develop marketing skills and sales skills and management and leadership skills and product skills and understand how engineers work and think and how product comes alive. And that just took a while. And so I ended up spending a good part of decade going and trying to find the best entrepreneurs I could find in LA where I was living at the time and trying to get involved in those companies early on and had the opportunity to work side by side, shoulder to shoulder with you know some really skilled, experienced entrepreneurs and kind of learn that playbook. It was not like a why leave to go start a company from scratch. It was when do I feel ready to do it successfully? You know and, and I had some failed startups along the way. <laughs> a whole bunch of money along the way. You know? Now I feel like I'm you know, thoroughly prepared, but it took a while to get there. So when you were in school, did you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? No, I have a degree in child psychology okay. and uh, started preparing for a to, to go back to school and get a PhD in clinical psychology. So I took the... GREs and the psych GREs and was doing research full-time for the professor that ran the adolescent psychology program at Northwestern University mm-hmm. and did that for about a year and just realized I didn't want to be in school for nine years or whatever it was going to be to get a PhD. <laughs> yeah, doesn't sound like fun to me. No, I wanted to work with people. I wanted to you know, go out at that point. I had this like save little bit of a save the world perspective. So that was a little bit hard to abandon, but the moving into a place where I could just be challenged every day rather than kind of going through the motions associated with doing dissertations and reviewing research papers and whatnot. And that's not to knock that. I just knew very quickly that that wasn't going to be a path that was going to hold my attention. And mm-hmm. so that first job in the first tech company, I had no applicable skill set whatsoever. I had a friend who was an account manager at that company and said, hey, it's the wild of us on the internet. This company's hiring 10 people every week and just take whatever job you can get and you'll figure out what you're good at. And I said that one passed my resume along and they hired me to a very entry-level job that I probably would have gotten fired for if I hadn't found my way into, at that (laughs) point, sales, something that I had a little bit of natural inclination to. So no, I had no idea I wanted to be an entrepreneur early on. I wish I had. I just didn't. It, It took a little while to get there. I love that you said that you had a lot of failed ones along the way. We don't talk about our failures enough. We just talk about the successes or we show those ones. We all have them. We all have some sort of failure, whether it's a failed startup or failures within the company. What did you do? What are some of yours? Why do you think they failed? Well, there's, there's every single day. There's, there's a different that's called testing and optimizing and learning. But as far as the first startups, I think I jumped in... Like I said, the early parts of my career, I wasn't one of these people that even necessarily knew what questions to ask. I just had more motivation, I think, than capability and ability to process at that point. I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't realize how to get there. But I wanted to try. And so usually a couple of cycles, I would work and help someone else launch their company and I would get more exposure and I'd come away motivated and confident. And I would have saved up some money and decided, you know, came up with an idea. And a lot of times I was chasing what was like the hot business model that I thought maybe I could execute. 
And I didn't know how to raise money. I didn't understand how to put together a real P&L. And yeah, I was kind of going day by day instead of kind of having a, a roadmap and really understanding what the first two years were going to take. And I would say more of the businesses that I failed at, if I had tried to start now, I've been perfectly successful. Maybe not the biggest companies in the world, but they were viable business models. I always gravitated towards you know, what do consumers need and want. And if you start there, then you can figure out how do you do that profitably with the right margin structure. And, and I think I was just a bit overwhelmed trying to outsource product development. And instead of partnering up with some people early on or trying to go out and raise some capital to build a small team to actually collaborate, I just kind of put the concept on my, on my back and tried to walk up a, a hill that was probably a little too steep for me at the time. You know, looking back, I think I probably could have made some of the businesses have a fighting shot, but I think I maybe got a little scared and at that point was self-funding them. And there was just only so, you know, so much capital I had in the bank. And again, I think I was just someone who for a long time wanted to be part of a team and having the opportunity to have a little bit of a safety net and learn how to think and learn how to ask questions. And I was one who I think I needed to go through it enough times that I could see what what it all entailed. And there are entrepreneurs that I know who didn't need that. They were just capable of going and figuring it out on the fly. But a lot of the, the entrepreneurs, I mean, look, look, like, you know, Elon Musk, right? The most successful, arguably, entrepreneur in the history of the world. You know, he's done it before. Right, that's relatively young right now. Might look and think that Tesla and Boring and SpaceX were oh, he's just this world class entrepreneur. Like he's this has this natural gift. He's obviously a gifted guy, but he did PayPal before that, and I forget the. I think he did two successful starts before that at much different levels of scale. So by the time he was sitting in a room with engineers and mapping out product and kind of putting together his vision, like he knows what he's going at. There will be different twists and turns, but. I think I needed that playbook. I needed to go back through the cycle and at that point, step in confidently knowing maybe not necessarily how successful any business would be, but understanding the principles behind it from product to investment, to managing a P&L, to financial structure, to hiring and managing people, to building executive teams. And look, I'm 46 years old now. It didn't happen overnight for me. Mm -hmm. What do you think are some of the most important things new entrepreneurs should know? Well, one, you can't do everything. And I don't think there's anybody out there that's good at everything. And so the advice that I had gotten along the way, reading books or blogs or meeting with you know, other entrepreneurs, it took a little while to sink in. But you know, one, yeah, you always hire people that are smarter than you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you can walk into a meeting and be the least you know, smart, least capable person in the room, like you've done it right. You figure out how to get the best talent you can possibly find in all aspects of your business. There's no way you're going to be amazing at finance and amazing at marketing and amazing at brand and storytelling and customer acquisition and amazing at hiring and amazing at HR and amazing at product and amazing at engineering and data science, all the operations and logistics, all those things. Like You have to know where your expertise is and then you have to fill in all the pieces around. That's one piece. The other piece is... I think if you could start a company with a partner or co-founder, you have someone there that has the same level of investment as you do. You have someone that's guaranteed to be on your level throughout the history of the company. And you have someone that's there to kind of celebrate the wins and to be there to kind of prop you up when you're having your challenges. There's no business. Dollar Shave was pretty darn close. But even within Dollar Shave Club, there were good moments and bad moments of every day, week, and month. And every business has its highs and lows of being an entrepreneur is a very lonely place. If you're doing it by yourself, then there's no one on your level. You might build out your C-suite, but if you're the sole founder and CEO, you don't have a colleague. 
-hmm. Everyone reports up to you. But if you start the business with one or two co-founders, even though the economics maybe change in the business, especially if you're a first-time entrepreneur, you have a support network. You have someone that you can talk to about anything. There's nothing that's confidential that that person can't have access to. And I did that with Posty, even after all these years and kind of training reps. I started this with Jonathan Nebner. And the truth is the business wouldn't be as successful. I wouldn't be as happy. I certainly would have carried even more stress than I currently do. And I just think that that's more times than not a winning formula. You know, there are plenty of people who build successful companies themselves, but I think more of them are successful if they have at least one co-founder. I love that. That's fantastic advice. My experience is all. <laughs> oh, well, I love this. You've dropped so many gems. We're going to have to have you back. Where can people find more information about you, more information about Posty, all that good stuff? Yeah, so we work hard in publishing great content, case studies, product information, industry information on our website. And so that's posty.com, P-O-S-T-I-E.com. And the easiest way and most direct way to reach me is through LinkedIn, LinkedIn Messenger. David L. Fink is my handle. If you search David Fink or Dave Fink and Posty, easy to find me. I'll pop right up and that's a great way to to connect. And then that also shows me a little bit about your background and maybe the reason that you might have reached out and we can go from there. Oh, incredible. And I'm going to have to use Posty in the States and get you on over here into Canada. (laughs) Like I said, slowly working our way. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. They're going to get so much benefit from this conversation. So thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it.